Let's pray. Father, we do adore you, and we are so grateful uh, to be yours. We know how unworthy we are to have received the call that we have received, to be your children, your sons, your daughters. We know that. And so we come to you, Father, and we express our adoration of you once more. And we just ask that you would help us as we study your word this morning. Lord, we know that you are the one who gives understanding. You are the one who gives insight. And ours, Lord, is to come to you and ask for it. And so that's what we do now. And we pray, Father, that you would bless our time together. And Lord, that we would be enriched and edified as we sit underneath this text and consider these ordinary men called by you to do wonderful things. So Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, turn in your Bibles with me back to the Gospel of Mark. We'll be in chapter 3, looking at verses 13 to 19 again this morning. We're looking at the call of the twelve apostles. And I've titled this sermon, Ordinary People, Extraordinary Calling, because as we think about these men, the men whom Jesus chose to be his representatives, it's exactly what we see. Ordinary men who were called by Jesus to do something extraordinary. And last week we spent our time looking at the sovereign aspects of this call. We saw that in verse 13. And then in verses 14 to 15, we looked at the specific strategy that Jesus had in calling these particular men at this particular point in history. And this morning, we come to verse 16. And Lord willing, we'll make it through verse 19 uh, together. Verses 16 to 19 will be our focus. And as you can see, this is basically a list of the 12 apostles with just some small elaborations uh, on a few of these men. And what I want to do, and I want to try to keep with the spirit of the Gospel of Mark, uh, which I think you'll appreciate, is brevity, right? Mark is brief. And so, you know, we could take each one of these guys and do a, a, an elaborate study. Uh, and there's a great book John MacArthur wrote uh, called 12, Extraordinary, or 12 Ordinary Men that does that. It is such a good resource. I would commend it to you. I'm not going to do that this morning. Uh, what I want to do is I want to look at a few of the men that Mark elaborates on. He doesn't elaborate much, but he does give some detail on a handful of these men. And we want to look at that elaboration just a bit. And what I want to do is just point out to you as we sort of look at those elaborations is point out to you just how surprising it is. How surprising it is that these were the men that Jesus chose. We say it, we've said it repeatedly for the past six months, but I hope by the end of our study this morning that you will say, wow, that really is shocking that Jesus would choose such ordinary men. And I have four reasons it's shocking, four surprising elements of this call of these particular men and I'll give them to you as we work through the text together. But before we do that, why don't we stand together and we'll read Mark chapter 3. We'll start in verse 13. Mark 3, verse 13. And he, that's Jesus, went up on the mountain and summoned those who, whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, so that they would be with him. And that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. 
and he appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. And Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. You may be seated. So as I said, I think there are four surprising aspects of the call of these twelve men. Four surprising aspects. You might come up with your own list, and I would love to hear it. Uh, But I have four, and I want to share those with you uh, this morning. And the first on the list, the first sort of shocking or surprising thing is probably what you would expect in one sense, is that these were just ordinary men. So the first surprising thing is just how ordinary these men really were. From our perspective, if we were placing the mantle of gospel ministry onto the shoulders of a few select people, we would, of course, set out to find the most able, qualified men for the job. Men with a good reputation, men with a great resume, men with great references. That's what we would do. That's sort of common sense. But what's surprising about this narrative, the call of the twelve, is that Jesus takes a much different approach than we would. In fact, Jesus seems to choose men who are, from a worldly perspective, the most unqualified and the most unlikely candidates for the position of apostle. I want to show you that. For one, except for Judas, all of these men were Galileans. Now, you didn't gasp And that tells me that you don't quite understand what it means to be a Galilean. In the first century, to be a Galilean was not a noble title. From the perspective of the ancient world, Galileans were considered low-class, rural, uneducated people. Now, we're talking about the selection of 12 men who will be God's official representatives. And Jesus chooses... Galileans, low-class, rural, uneducated people. They were not the sort of people you would gather in to garner credibility for a religious movement. They were unlikely in this respect. There were no, among the twelve, there were no philosophers, no brilliant thinkers, no famous teachers, no distinguished men, no influential men at all. They were effectively nobodies. Now, that should be a comfort to you, if you know yourself. And these men were not the sort of men that would have been picked first uh, for the kickball team. They were not that. These were unlikely men, and they were unlikely first because they were Galileans. Secondly, what's surprising about these men is that none of them were selected from the rabbinical schools. That's shocking. That's surprising. Jesus is launching a religious movement. Now, religion in the most proper sense of the word. 
Jesus is launching, starting, beginning a movement here, and it's a religious movement, yet he doesn't choose a single religious leader to be on the team of the twelve. There are no Pharisees, no Sadducees, no priests. None of the religious leadership were included in the list of the twelve. And part of that, of course, is what we saw last week. Uh, this, the calling of the twelve, you remember, was a direct indictment on whom? The religious leadership. The leaders of Israel were so corrupt that none of them were fit to lead the people of God under the new covenant. There needed to be an entirely new set of men to lead God's people. And so they were all replaced. And also the perverted form of Judaism that the Pharisees had put together, created and propagated, and remember they were teaching this as the very word of God, Jesus declared that to be an anathema. Remember, the gospel that Jesus preached, the gospel of repentance and forgiveness of sins, could not be combined with the perverted, self-righteous theology of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Remember in a previous chapter, Jesus said that the garment of apostate Judaism could not be sewn onto the garment of the new covenant. And the old wineskins of self-righteous religion and tradition would not be able to contain the gospel of grace and forgiveness that Jesus was proclaiming. A fresh start was necessary to keep the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of the kingdom, pure. And so Jesus doesn't go recruiting from the priesthood, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, he goes to the hillside, as it were, and he's looking for men who are not influential, not the kind of people you would select for a religious movement, men who are untrained theologically that he can take and make them into his kind of man. That's what he's doing. He doesn't need them to be prepared already. He needs them to come to him and he will teach them what they need to know. And so their selection then as 12 apostles is surprising because they weren't religiously qualified. They also were Galileans. And so in a very real sense, they were just commonplace, ordinary, unremarkable people. In fact, the only thing interesting about them, as we'll see, is their quirks. And those are the kind of things you don't want to be you know, known for. And unfortunately, in God's providence, we look at these 12 men and we often highlight their weaknesses. You don't want that. You don't want your life to be analyzed through the microscope and then uh, posterity for centuries to come is always looking at your mistakes and saying, wow, why did she do that? Why did he do that? But this was God's mechanism for keeping these 12 men humble. And it was for their good. So, these were very ordinary men, unlikely candidates for the call. Yet, praise God, these were the kind of men that Jesus called for the job. Now, this, of course, ought to be a reminder for us all that our backgrounds, our pasts, 
upbringing, our status in society, none of these things determine our usefulness to God. You may be here this morning, and you may be thinking that your past is too dark. You have sinned too much, too great to be useful to the Lord. You have made a mess of it long enough. Well, if you think that you are too messed up, too disqualified to become useful in the Lord's hands, then you don't know these 12 men. Right? The, the lesson of the 12 apostles, at least in this initial call, and what we'll see as we work through the Gospel of Mark, is that if God can use them, He can use anybody. No one is outside of the reach of His grace. And we see again and again that what seems to be like their disqualification is actually the very thing that qualifies them for usefulness in the Lord's hand. It's God's pattern to use unlikely people to carry out His extraordinary work. So I'll remind you, church, you see, there's a lot of work to do at Calvary, right? Don't you see that? Lots of things to be done. Uh, lots of new people. We're glad you're here. We love you. We are glad you are here with us. Uh, lots of new, lots of old, lots of work to be done at Calvary Bible Church. And so if you're sitting there with your hands on your seat and thinking, well, I'm just not the person for the job. I'm just, I don't have the right degree. I don't have the right credentials. I don't have the background, the history that I need to meet that need. Friend, let me tell you that your qualification is your humble recognition that you are not enough. And the Lord will take your humble recognition that you are not enough, and He will strengthen you to do the work He's given you to do. We see this again and again. So let me remind each one of you, you are not too weak, okay? All right, I want you all to look at me, all right? You are not too weak. You are not too ordinary. You are not too insignificant to be useful in the Lord's hands. John MacArthur puts it really well, I think, when he writes this. We tend to think that we are worthless nobodies. And left to ourselves, that would be true. But worthless nobodies are just the kind of people God uses because worthless nobodies are the only people He has to work with. <laughs> and the call of the Twelve, of course, proves that to us. It's not extraordinary talents, intellectual abilities, powerful social, political skills. You're going to have awkward conversations. It just happens. Just... Follow the disciples through the Gospels. Right? You see that they don't have what it takes, but the Lord empowers them by His Spirit to carry out the work. It's not our abilities. It's our humble submission to Jesus and our willingness to follow Him even when we feel our weakness the most. That's what He comes and strengthens. He does this so that he can demonstrate to the watching world that the source of the Christian's strength is not their pedigree, not their education, not their social skills, not their financial, financially strong position. 
the thing that energizes and strengthens Christians is not themselves, but it's the God behind them, empowering them to carry out the work. So that's what I think is the first surprise here. It's shocking to me how ordinary these men were. The second shock, surprising element here, is just how much these 12 men needed to change. Now, some of you are thinking, I don't want to work. I don't want to serve the Lord until I get all my ducks in a row. Well, what we see with the apostles, this call of the 12, is that they needed radical change, but Jesus didn't wait till they were completely matured before he gave them assignments to do. They sort of stumbled their way into growth, and that's often what happens. From the time of the appointment of the twelve, the disciples had about a year and a half to be trained by Jesus. And at this point in the gospel narrative, the ministry of Jesus shifts to a a focus on equipping these twelve men and to help them to rise to the level, level of their calling. We saw last week that their training ground, of course, was to simply be with Jesus. They were to be with Jesus as he taught, as he loved the unlovable, which often included them. They were the ones on the receiving end of receiving the love of Christ when they were not very lovely. They saw him, they were to be with him, rather, as he debated the scribes and the Pharisees and, and sort of with a scalpel revealed the rottenness of their self-righteous religious system. So these men were to be with Jesus and to see Him doing what He did and then to go out and imitate His ways. Now, if you know anything about the Gospels, you know that that didn't happen instantaneously. We know that the transformation of the twelve was not an easy, smooth process. They had a long way to go. And it was a rough road to get there. As you study the Gospels, you sort of get an understanding as to why these disciples were not part of the academy in the first place. Probably none of them would have been accepted into the schools. These precious men, they seem to be very dull and very slow. They were slow to understand what Jesus was trying to teach them. And often you, you read, you read the Gospels, you hear Jesus teach, and you just, it's kind of like nails on a chalkboard. It's just painful hearing them, seeing them respond and do what they do. And you're thinking, oh, don't say that, don't do that. But they do it. And Jesus bears with them. Although on a couple of occasions, he rebukes them for their dullness or their unbelief. Matthew 5.16, for example, he looks at Peter after Jesus has given a, a really easy-to-understand parable. Uh, when the, if the blind lead the blind, they both fall into the pit. Pretty straightforward. Blind people leading blind people. If there's a pit, they're going to fall into it. Uh, Jesus, Peter walks, goes up to Jesus and says, what do you mean by that? <laughs> Jesus looks at him and says, are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand? Again, in Luke 24, 25, Jesus rebuked the disciples for being slow to believe. He says this, O foolish men and slow of heart 
to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Foolish men, slow of heart to believe. Let me give you another example. Mark 6 uh, is the account of Jesus feeding the 5,000. You remember that. Jesus feeds the 5,000 with just a few fish and some bread. And then in Mark 8, interestingly, if you see Mark 6, 33, and then you flip over to Mark 8, you see the same thing happening again, but this time with only 4,000 men. And then, stay in Mark 8 there, and then immediately after Jesus feeds these men, he interacts with um, the Pharisees, and then they get into the boat to go across the lake. You remember the story? Mark 8, let's pick up in verse 14. And they had forgotten to take bread. Interesting, there were just two narratives about Jesus multiplying a couple of loaves of bread and fish to feed thousands of people. And here they are in the boat, they realize, ha, we forgot bread. So they forgot to take bread, and they didn't have more than one loaf in the boat with them. That was enough for Peter, probably, who didn't want to share. Verse 15, and he was giving orders to them. So they're thinking about bread. They're realizing their mess. they forgot their bread. Verse 15, Jesus begins to give orders to them saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. That's a spiritual lesson. He had just been interacting with the Pharisees. And he says, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. Leaven is that little agent that will cause bread to rise. Eleven of the Pharisees, maybe self-righteousness, beware for it, right? It's everywhere, and it starts little, and it wants to grow big. So be on guard against that. And they say, well, now that you mentioned it, Jesus, we forgot our bread. That's verse 16. They began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. (laughs) That's one of those moments where you're like, oh, don't do that. I know where this is going. Well, they're fighting over their bread, concerned about the bread, And verse 17, and Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? To remember is to call to mind. Have you already forgotten what you just saw? When I broke, verse 19, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? They said to him, 12. Okay. Verse 20, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? No. How many times have you seen Jesus do something wonderful? All right, so it's easy to look at these men and very heavily critique them. Uh, we are very much like them, I'm afraid. Uh, we have his word. It's fixed. It's certain. Uh, it has wonderful promises in it that he will never leave us nor forsake us. But how many times do we think, oh, this is the time he's going to do it? This is the time he's going to forsake me. How many times has he faithfully brought you through trial after trial after trial in your life? And yet this trial is the one you think he's going to be unfaithful this time. He hasn't been faithful in thousands of years. And he's never let one of his people down. He's never done one unjust thing ever. But this is the time. Right? 
Do you not remember? Do you not recall how faithful he has been? So beware of being heavy-handed on these brothers. But the point is, is that they were very slow, very dull, bless their hearts, to get the truth. And part of that actually was because they were so proud. I don't know if you knew that there was a connection between dullness, slowness to learn, and pride. It's very clear with the apostle, with these 12 men. And part of the reason they were so thick-headed is because they thought so highly of themselves. If you know everything, you don't need to learn anything. They were all proud, it seems. So naturally, they spent a lot of their time, we read in Scripture, they spent a lot of their time debating about which one of them was the best. You do that with your friends, don't you? You sit around, all right, which one of us is the best? Well, this is what they were doing. They would sit around and debate with one another who was uh, the greatest. We see that in Mark 9, verse 33. They were on their way with Jesus to Capernaum one day. And then Jesus, knowing what they were talking about, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had discussed with one another which one of them was the greatest. They knew they were in trouble. And then Luke 9, verse 46 says this, An argument started among them on a different occasion as to which of them might be the greatest. It's apparently a topic of discussion they loved. Why? Because they really loved themselves. Now, at another time, James and John got their mom involved. Do you remember that? And she approached Jesus and requested that her two precious, worthy sons... uh, be given the honor of sitting at Jesus' right and left hand during his reign. These are positions of honor and privilege. And when the other disciples heard this, do you remember what they did? Well, they didn't celebrate and say, yeah, this is right, because James and John are the best. No, Matthew 20, verse 24, says that the others were indignant. They were angry. And you get the picture, I don't know this for sure, but you get the picture that they're not angry because James and John had acted so presumptuously and proud. But you get the picture that they're upset that they they got beat out by James and John to ask first. right? It's like uh, James and John beat them to the punch. They wanted that. And James and John even brought their mom. You know, it's, it's just sneaky. And they're upset about it. Now, the point here is that these men were people who needed a surprising amount of help. None of them were ready. None of them had arrived. They each had a very, very long way to go. But what is so amazing about this story is that we get to see their transformation through the pages of Scripture. We see them undergo a radical transformation such that in the end of it all, the world looks at them, or the leaders of Israel look at them, and they, they say, these men have turned the world upside down. They went from nobodies, insignificant, ordinary people, to being the men that Jesus used to turn the world upside down. They were radically transformed. Now, I, we could look at each one of these men and see the transformation. 
It's really a fascinating thing to do. But Mark lists first on the list in verse 16, Simon. Simon. Simon is uh, given a little bit of comments. Verse 16, and he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. Now I think Mark gives us this name for one so that we know who he's talking about. But we have to ask ourselves, why does Jesus change Peter's name or Simon's name to Peter? And I would argue that it's because of the change that was necessary for Peter to become God's kind of man. And let me prove that for you. Simon's full name in Greek was Simon Bariona, which is sometimes rendered Simon son of Jonah and sometimes Simon son of John. So you see it as both throughout the Gospels. But whether it was Simon, the son of John, or Simon, the son of Jonah, Jesus didn't really care. Jesus had a better name for Simon, and that name was Peter. And according to the Gospel of John, the first thing Jesus did when he met Simon, son of John, or Simon, son of Jonah, was to change his name. It's a really interesting first thing to do. Only Jesus could do that. Uh, Listen to John 1. You can turn there if you want. John 1, verse 40. One of the two had heard John speak, that's John the Baptist, and followed him, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now, Simon, of course, uh, Andrew, rather, is mentioned in the list in Mark 3, and Simon Peter's brother. When Andrew heard John the Baptist, or heard John the Baptist speak, He went, it says in verse 40, he found first his own brother Simon and said to him, this is Peter, right? He said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated Christ. He brought him to Jesus. So Andrew, Simon's brother, brings Simon to Jesus. And the text says, Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Now, that is quite a greeting, and I wouldn't recommend that you change people's names in your first interaction with them. That's not a good way to win friends and influence people. Uh, But Jesus can do it because he has a very specific purpose for changing Simon's name. You should know that Cephas is the Aramaic word for what? Rock. And Petros, or Peter, is the Greek word for rock. And so what Jesus does here is he looks at Simon and says to him, From now on, Simon, we'll call you Rock. Which, ironically, is the exact opposite of what Simon is in that moment. And of course, uh, Andrew knows that. Uh, Andrew knows his brother. He knows that he's the opposite of this. He knows that this name is not befitting of him. And so do the rest of these men. And, and they, unfortunately for them, but I guess fortunately for them on, on the grand scheme, they have to call Peter, or Simon, the rock all the time. And every time they say it, they know... This just seems so wrong. Peter, as one author summarized it, was this way. He was, by nature, brash, 
vacillating, going back and forth, and undependable. He tended to make great promises he couldn't follow through with. He was one of those people who appears to lunge wholeheartedly into something, but then bails out before finishing it. You know people like that. You might be like that. The Lord can change you. Right? He, he was one of those people who appears to lunge wholeheartedly into something, but then bails out before finishing. He was usually the first one in, and too often he was the first one out. When Jesus met Peter, James's description of a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, was the best description. James 1.8. Unstable, double-minded, the opposite of a rock. Not the kind of guy you build a movement on. However, Jesus names him the rock as a way of calling Peter to a higher level. You are not a rock yet, Peter, but you will become that. You will, by the work of the Spirit, by the work of Christ, he will become what he is not. And really, the name Peter, every time it's mentioned, is a way of foreshadowing for Peter and for all the other apostles how Jesus was going to transform Peter from being unstable, unreliable, and impulsive into the rock upon whose profession and faith the church itself would be built. Peter had a long way to go. He was not there yet. But that didn't disqualify him from being called to the work. Now that's just Peter. There's, uh, look at verse 17. There are two other guys here that have some comment. Uh, that's James and John. Verse 17. And James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. It's the only place where these two men are called sons of thunder. If you just take a minute and let your mind wonder, what kind of men would have that nickname? Well, this is really uh, the reverse of what Jesus did with Simon. Right, Simon became the rock so that he would have a clear target of what he needed to become. Right, Simon became the rock so that he'd have a clear target of what he needed to become. James and John were called the sons of thunder because that's exactly what they were, sons of thunder, and they needed to change. Peter was not a rock. He needed to become a rock. James and John were sons of thunder. They needed to stop that, and Jesus is going to work that out of them, and they got this nickname probably from an event that happened in Luke chapter 9. You remember that Jesus is traveling, and he had sent messengers ahead to a village in order to find lodging for him and his disciples. But the people of the village refused to open their homes to him. It's a Samaritan village. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem from Galilee, and they won't open their homes to them. And so James and John go back to Jesus, and they say in Luke 9, 54, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume these people? I mean, talk about a reaction. Now, James and John were fishermen. They were brothers. And Peter and um, Andrew and Simon were brothers. And they were, they were friends before Jesus called them. You know, they likely had a pretty rough, brash personality by default and, and part of their upbringing, part of their occupation 
But this takes it to a new level. James and John seem to stand out above the rest of this rough crowd in their severity. Apparently, uh, the best title for them was Sons of Thunder. And if you got in their way, they didn't need to talk to you. Uh, They would just wipe you out. Uh, You didn't want to get in their way. These are the kind of guys that you don't want to have the nuclear code, right? You disagree with them? All right. And they start uh, tapping away. And you better run. But amazingly, Jesus transforms these rough men into the kind of people he wants them to be. This is his practice. This is what Jesus does. James becomes the first apostolic martyr, the first apostle to be reunited with Jesus. That's James' honor, James' privilege. He is transformed from the kind of person who wants to wipe out his enemies with fire from heaven to the kind of man who submits to God's providences and lays down his life for the advancement of the gospel for the sake of other people. Let's not kill them. Let's lay our life down for their prosperity. John was also transformed somewhat rapidly, it seems. And he's quickly uh, recognized not as the apostle of thunder, but as what? The apostle of love. He goes from being a proud man maneuvering for prominence, looking for ways to extend himself above other people, calling down fire from heaven, to a man of humility, focused upon, focused upon loving and serving others, rather than destroying them. In a word, these men are transformed into the image of Christ. Now, these men had a long way to go. And I know that some of you are there, out there right now, down the hall, and you sense the length that you have to travel to become God's kind of person, don't you? Isn't it heavy? It's hard. It's discouraging. You look at where you are. You look at where you need to be. And you think, this could never happen. This will never happen. I will never get there. You know, you feel like you've got 100 miles to go and you're crawling. Right? You just can't get there. This is an encouragement. Ought to be, rather, an encouragement to us. That Jesus is... M.O. is to take men who want to wipe the planet out and make them into men who want to lay their lives down for the benefit of others. This is what Jesus does. It's his expertise to transfer, transform ordinary men and women with a lot of baggage like you and me and make them into his servants. In fact, I think the more you are aware of your unfitness for the work God has given you to do, the more powerful weapon you will be in his hands. So, we saw this as a surprising call because of how ordinary these men were. It's surprising in the sense of how much they all needed to be changed. And third, it's surprising in the sense of how different each one of these men were. There's a lot of similarities, but there were a lot of differences. And one difference that just sort of jumps off the page at me is the difference between... The two men listed in verse 18. Verse 18 says, And Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew, which Matthew we know from uh, Mark chapter 2, 
where he is called to follow Jesus from being a what? A tax collector. And then he goes on, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot. Simon the zealot and Matthew, or Levi, the tax collector. These two men were on opposite ends of a very charged uh, political spectrum. Matthew, the tax collector, was pro-government to the extent that he had laid aside his reputation, family ties, religion, in order to work for the Roman government. Israel's underneath Roman rule. Matthew leaves his Jewish heritage, sacrifices his social standing in one sense, to become uh, a member of the Roman Workers' Party. That's not an official title, I just made that up. The Roman government. In fact, the taxes that Matthew would collect, and then he would extort from people, these would have went to fund the Roman occupation of Israel. You get the picture of that. Now, on the other end of this spectrum is Simon, the zealot. Right? He's called a zealot in verse 18. If you have the King James or the New King James Bible, it might say Simon the Canaanite. The Canaanite is basically a transliteration of the Greek word kananios. But most scholars believe that this word, Canaanite, is not from the Hebrew word, but from the Aramaic word, which means an enthusiast or a zealot which is what Simon is called in Luke 6.15 and Acts 1.13. So Simon is officially a zealot, meaning that he was most likely part of an outlaw political party called the Freedom Fighters. Freedom from whom? The Roman government. This was a group that hated Rome, and they took their hatred of Rome to extreme lengths. Because they didn't have an official army to oppose Rome, they essentially functioned like terrorists in order to sabotage the Roman government. Some of them even carried small daggers under their robes to assassinate political opponents, including people like tax collectors. You get the picture. Simon is essentially a Jewish patriot who had viewed have viewed Matthew as a sellout and as a traitor to his God and to his country. Now, how do you bring these two people together? What's your formula? What are you going to do to unite people that are this divided? I think we could learn a lot of lessons from Jesus' approach. Let me give you three things that Jesus does to unify these men. Of course, it's Matthew and, and Simon the Zealot, but this transcended their two political issues and went to every issue that these men would have disagreement about. Remember, they're, pri- they're proud. What do proud people like to talk about? Themselves. they got 12 people. They love themselves. They think they're the best. This is a recipe for disaster. But Jesus unites them. And here's what he does. The first thing he does is really in Mark 8, 34. So why don't you flip over there. And I'll remind you that what we read here is actually the prerequisite for coming to Jesus Christ. If you are going to follow Christ, then you have to do what we see in Mark 8, 34. And each one of these men had to do that. 
All right, so let's read it. Mark 8, 34. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must do what? Deny himself. Op arneomai. Refuse to acknowledge yourself. Step one. You want to be a part of this apostolic band? You want to be a part of this group of redeemed individuals? Step one, you must die to yourself. How do you unite, unite Matthew and Simon the Zealot? They must die. Simon the Zealot must die. Matthew the, Levite, the, Matthew the tax collector must die to himself. The entry point into the Christian life is death to self. It's the only way to unity, only way to peace. The first step is death to self. True followers of Christ have taken up their cross and are daily dying to themselves. That means they are dying to their ambitions, their preferences, their desires, and they have adopted the preferences, ambitions, and desires of the Lord Jesus Christ. Until that happens... You are not a follower of Jesus Christ. If you're still living for your personal preferences, your personal ambitions, your personal desires, how can you say that you've been crucified? How can you say that you have died to yourself? If the entry point into the Christian life is self-crucifixion, all my desires, all my ambitions, all my preferences... If that's the gateway into Christianity, that little narrow passage is too small for you to carry the, you know, the backpack of all of your preferences. You have to lay them down. Simon, you've got all your political preferences. That's a really big backpack, brother. You've got to take it off and lay it down. Matthew, you've got yours. Take it off. Lay it down. You will never make it through that little straight way with all of that on your back. You've got to get rid of that and adopt my preferences, my ambitions, and my aims. Until you do that, one, you can't be mine, and two, you'll never have peace. I will tell you, the reason you have disunity in your family, the reason you have disunity at work, the reason you have disunity in a church is because people have not died to themselves. If you're around people with high preferences, you're going to have disunity. James 3.16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every vile thing. Where jealousy, jealousy, I want to be the best. I want to be perceived as the best in this scenario. That's jealousy. Selfish ambition. I want to push you down so I can get up. Where that exists, James says, there will be disorder in every vile thing. And Jesus' remedy to that, the first step in unification, is okay, you all have to die. You all have to die to your preferences, your ambitions, and you now adopt my own. So I ask you, have you done that? Are you living for yourself? Or are you living, as Jesus said here, in a way where you refuse to acknowledge yourself? Or are you constantly acknowledging yourself and you're upset that other people aren't acknowledging you? If that's the sort of environment, if that's the sort of mindset you have, you will constantly be at odds with people around you. You'll constantly be disappointed. So Jesus says, 
How do we unify Matthew and Simon? Well, first, they've got to die. They have to die. Second, not only did he require them to crucify their own preferences and die to themselves, he set before these men a vision for life and truth that transcended all that they had lived for up to that point. Up to that point, Simon is thinking political intervention is a solution. Matthew seems to be just thinking about his own personal pleasure and wealth. And what Jesus does, he says, you have to die, and then he sets before them a gospel that transcends everything that they had ever lived for up to that moment in their lives. And when he does this, when this is set before them in earnest and clearly, and once they die to themselves and they adopt Jesus' aim, they are now united under the same banner of Christ. And they are living no longer for themselves, but the one who died for them. They have one mission, one vision, one ambition. They have, Philippians 2, the mind of Christ. Once this vision of the gospel and understanding of the gospel and the kingdom was properly positioned in the hearts of the disciples, all of their squabbles over politics and personal preferences suddenly seemed ridiculous and petty. They were now living for something larger than themselves. This is what we do, isn't it? We sort of shrink the world down to our petty differences. And Jesus sort of shatters that and gives us a larger vision of what we might do and what he has called us to. And when we realize that, all of our differences and preferences, we've crucified them already and we see, wow, we should have crucified them a long time ago. And now we adopt the mind of Christ and we can work together to advance the kingdom of God. That's step two. Step three, towards unity. So first is you have to die. Step two is Jesus establishes this vision of the gospel and and global conquest for them that elevates them out of their little mundane petty squabbles. And then third, the third step towards unity is I think best captured by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 14. Why don't you just flip over there real quick with me? 2 Corinthians 5, 14. So these disciples had to die to themselves. They were given a vision that was much larger than themselves. But I would argue that there was something more fundamental that sort of drove the engine of their lives. It wasn't just that they had died. It wasn't just that they had this large vision. But there was some fuel that, that caused them and compelled them to live for the Lord and to lay down their, squab- their, their, their fighting and to live for Jesus. Verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 5. Paul writes this, For the love of Christ controls us. Or compels us, I think is even a better translation. The idea there of compelling is it's something that presses you to action. It urges you on. It impels you to keep going. That's what he's talking about. And and what is it? What is the thing that sort of compels us and propels us to action? To lay down our petty differences and be united. What is it? 
Verse 14. The love of Christ. That's what compels us. Not Paul's love for Jesus. I don't think that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about how much he loves Jesus. Oh, my love for Jesus fuels my ambition for Jesus. That's not what he's talking about. He is talking about, if you look at the rest of the verse, he's talking about Jesus' love for him. When he recognized that Jesus loved him to the depth and height and breadth that Jesus actually loved him, Paul was compelled to action. Look at the rest of the verse. He says, For the love of Christ compels us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. That's love, John 3.16. Verse 15, And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for who? Themselves. But for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Friends, the fuel that compels the Christian to act is the love of Christ. Not your flickering, faint love for Jesus. If that's your fuel, friend, you won't make it very far. It's your recognition of Christ's love for you. That is the fuel. That will keep you going when your little dim flicker of love to Jesus goes out. Love of Christ. I'll tell you, once I mean, you see this through the Gospels, they're just struggling. But they're not there yet. They're not there yet. They think they've died to self, but they, they haven't done it just yet. They're dull. They're slow to learn. And they're just struggling all along the way. But something happens. They see Jesus crucified. They think, it's over. This is it. We know he loved us. But he, he must have been just out of his mind. Something was going on there. We don't know. But he's dead and all our hopes and dreams are now in the tomb. And then he rises from the dead. And when they get it, they are transformed. These men are changed. And what they get, I would argue, is they get the height and breadth and depth of Christ's love for them. And that compels them through the book of Acts to count their lives as worthless if only Christ's love might be advanced to the world. It compels them to act. And friends, I will remind you, they didn't get it at first. It was a process for them. That None of them were there out of the gate. It was a slow, arduous process. But once it clicked for them, once they understood that the cross was about the demonstration of Christ's love for me, once you understand that, the lights come on. And it changes everything about your life. You no longer live for yourself, but you live for Him who loved you and gave Himself up for you. Now, it's 1140. So I'm going to stop preaching. Um, and I'm going to hopefully, I, I want to pray that the Lord would let this settle on our hearts. And that each one of us would be shocked and reminded at the greatness of Christ's love for us. I don't know when the last time you thought about that was. I don't know when the last time you sat and considered the measure of God's love for you. 
But I would encourage you to do that today. Take some time. Contemplate. Think about the manifestation of God's love for you. And you say, well, I just don't know if He loves me. How, how can I know that God loves me? It's a great question. Romans 5.8 says this, that God has demonstrated His love for us, that's you and me, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The greatest manifestation of the love of Jesus, the love of God for you, is that He gave Jesus to live and die on your behalf. Once you get that, it changes everything. Let's pray. Father, would you help us? Help us to get that. Now, we confess that we don't quite comprehend the heights and the depths and the breadth and the length and the width of your love. But we know, Lord, that this was the fuel and that compelled the apostles and Christians for centuries to live faithfully for you. And so our prayer, Lord, is that you would help us this morning in a renewed way to comprehend the love of Christ for us. Lord, also to die to ourselves, to get a glimpse of this larger vision of what you're doing in the world. And Father, to be compelled by these to live earnestly and faithful, faithfully for you. Lord, would you forgive us of our failure and forgive us of our dullness of heart, our slowness to believe and take you at your promises. And I pray, Lord, we pray together that you would continue the work that you have started in us and that you would bring it to completion just as you have promised. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.